Well, I ask you to open up with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Look at the dedication of the temple this evening. But before we start reading there, why don't we go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. We thank you that you are good and gracious and you are at work among your people. And we thank you for these events we have recorded here in Scripture and pray that it would be a reminder of your faithfulness, your goodness, your commitment to your people, and yet the necessity of your people to diligently seek you and uh, confess and forsake sin. And uh, may, may your word be a help to us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I have a, another building here. We've been talking about buildings the last few weeks. Um, I'm guessing that no one has any clue what this building is. Um, I didn't know what it was either. But uh, at the time, in 2003, and I'm going to read some notes here that I have, it was the largest building ever built by Harvard University. Um, and it was a 425,000 square foot uh, new research building, which cost about $260 million to build. Um, the president of the university uh, uh, gave a speech at the uh, dedication of this building and uh, basically recognized many people in the process involved in building it. He uh, also said some interesting things. He said that it was uh, uh, many people in the United States are going to be better off because of the building that they're building because uh, this f facility uh, was going to be used for research uh, in medicine and, and therefore it would be a help to end human suffering caused by disease. That's what he was saying. He also mentioned about his own personal struggle and how he had some medical problems about 20 years before that time and he learned during the process that it was the research done 10 or 15 years before that that actually led to his cure. Now this this building um, it is typical of the kinds of things that happens these days where there's dedications of buildings and basically the idea is a new building is built and it's recognized that it's built for a particular purpose and people praise that purpose for which the building's been created and they talk about the people who helped build it. Well, today we're going to talk about the temple and how the temple was finished and they have a dedication ceremony. But I think it's interesting to note there's some differences about the temple dedication and what is typical in our day of dedications. Um, I didn't read you much of the uh, things that were said at the dedication of this research building. Um, but one thing that was clear is a recognition of human achievement. There's a focus upon human achievement in those kinds of buildings and those situations. And it is also an aspiration towards a further human achievement. Whereas when we're going to look at the temple and the dedication of the temple, who's honored in, in the dedication of the temple? The Lord. The Lord is the one honored and recognized. 
And as we go through the chapter, chapter 8 of 1 Kings, we're not going to see praise for men and man's great achievements. It's going to be recognition of the faithfulness of God. Very, very different than how many uh, present building dedications today. But we're going to look at uh, 1 Kings 8 here in just a minute, but I, I didn't get the picture up last time. This is actually a, a picture available from the uh, Nelson's uh, book of Bible maps and charts, and it's, it's uh, one of those books that you isn't is designed for churches to be able to use and reproduce and and share these things so um this is just a basic out uh diagram of what the temple looked like so we talked about the completion of the temple last week and i just wanted to show you this you can see here the dimensions a, a cubit um was basically the measure of the fingertip to the elbow which was about a foot and a half so the measurement of the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits or about 30 feet. The, uh, the uh, holy place or the sanctuary here is 40 cubits or about 60 feet. And the vestibule or the porch area here is about 10 or uh, cubits or 15 feet. And there were two prominent pillars that were bronze. And we were told, if you remember, they were how tall? Anyone? 18 cubits or... 27 feet high okay and they were named uh they were given special names there and this is just an assumption of what it might have looked like we don't know exactly there are no surviving photography from that day um but uh these are some guesses on what it might have looked like all right so just so you have a little bit of a physical picture perhaps in mind but the temple is complete and we're going to see how they then uh, decide to dedicate it to the lord and honor him in the process. So let's look at 1 Kings um, 8 uh, and look at the first 13 verses there where we'll see uh, talk about the presence of God. So let's look at uh, starting with verse 1. It says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. They brought up the Ark of the Lord and the tent of the meeting and the, all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, to the, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. 
All right, so we see here the presence of God is talked about in the first 13 verses. Um, but I want you to see the participation of God's people here. Who, does, who participates in this? We have Solomon, and it says he assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's household of the sons of Israel. So we have here the people being represented by leadership of the nation of Israel. So we have the king, and we have the elders, the heads of the tribes, the leaders of their father's household. So obviously not everyone in Israel could be there, but they chose to have leadership there uh, to represent the people at the dedication of the temple. So where was the place that they were having the dedication? They were having uh, the dedication at the temple in Jerusalem, all right? And what was the purpose? The purpose uh, of this, this section that we're looking at is them moving the ark into the temple. So the tabernacle symbolized the presence of God, the, the place where God would meet with them, the ark uh, representing the, the specific presence of God where he would speak with the, with the people. So um, this is a transition, like we said the last couple of weeks, a transition away from the tabernacle to the temple. So they need to move the ark up there, and they're also going to have the feast, uh, which actually coincided with the... Uh, they, they, they must have uh, arranged it on, on purpose to, to coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles or the, the Feast of Booths in the seventh month there, which in our timetable, our calendar, which would be approximately September, October time frame. So uh, that's when their seventh month was. So we see here the participation of the leadership of Israel in the moving of the ark here as, as this was happening. Um, but we're going to see some details about the process of moving the ark. Um, the elders and Solomon here are actually the audience watching. They're not the ones actually moving it. It's actually going to be the priests that take up the ark. So uh, if you remember with me, there were a couple incidents in Israel's history where they moved the ark, right? And they had trouble. So you remember the, the first time where there was trouble, well, um, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, it talks about them dealing with the ark. The Philistines had taken the ark because uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had uh, foolishly taken the ark out to the battle, and they lost the battle, and they died, and the ark was captured. Well, the ark caused all kinds of trouble for the Philistines, if you remember that. And so the Philistines decide to bring it back. And then the people of Beth Shemesh in uh, 1 Samuel 6 um, offer sacrifices to the Lord. And then some of them looked into the ark, which is what you're not supposed to do. So there were a large number of people killed in that incident there in 1 Samuel chapter 6. There was another incident as well when David decided to move the ark. The ark remained where it was for a while, but then David decided to remove it, or to move it. And then there was another incident. Does anyone remember his name? Who, who was the guy that touched the ark because the oxen stumbled and, he, and, and it tipped the ark and he thought it was going to fall over 
So he thought he was doing a good thing to reach out his hand and catch it. You remember? Uzzah, that's right. So Uzzah reached out his hand to catch the ark. He touched it, which he wasn't supposed to do, and the Lord killed him. And then David basically paused the moving of the ark, and then later on went and moved it again. Uh, but there were a couple incidents like this. So Solomon actually has the right people do the work of moving the ark, and, and it's the Levites. The, the priests of the Levite line are the ones who move it, so they do the right thing. We also see in verse 5 that uh, they're offering sacrifices during this time. And this is very similar to what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6. When, when David is moving up the ark, He's offering sacrifices. He's rejoicing that the ark of the Lord is coming to Jerusalem uh, to be near where he is. So he's celebrating. He's offering sacrifices. And, and Solomon and the people are uh, offering sacrifices at this time as well. There's a celebration going on here. And then we see that the ark arrives at the temple here in verses 6 through 9. We see the priests bring the ark into its place, and it talks about them using poles. Again, that was the authorized way to move the ark. So they used the poles so they can uh, move it safely and put it in its place. And they, and they brought it into, as we talked about, the uh, inner sanctuary here, or the most holy place. The thing about this drawing, it doesn't really have the, the angels with their wings spread out there, but there were two angels, the cherubim, um, that were basically touching wings across the width of it, the, the 20, and they were essentially covering there, uh, and they put the ark in there where the angels were, as it mentions here. All right? So it also interestingly mentions the contents of the ark. Did you catch that in verse 9? What are the contents of the ark? The tablets. What are the two tablets? Okay, the Ten Commandments, right? So it draws specific attention to this, and I think, I think this is significant to think about in light of this, especially as we're going to see the cloud of God's presence as well. So we have here the ark, which is symbolic of the presence of God, the place where God meets with his people. And inside of it is the Ten Commandments, the expressed will of God, right? The Ten Commandments. And I, and I think that's uh, interesting to note and think about that the Ten Commandments were, were the foundation of that covenant between the Lord and His people Israel. It is His written word to His people. Now we're going to see here in verses uh, 11 through 13 or 10 through 13 where it talks about the cloud filling the house. And the priest could not stand there because of the cloud. For it was the glory of the Lord filled the house. Well... The cloud, or the thick cloud, was representative of God's presence as well. But it's interesting, they can't be in there because of the cloud. So there's this obscurity of God's presence with the cloud, and yet in the ark is the word of God. What, what's the significance? I, I think it's significant to them, it's significant to us as well, is how may we know God... And what is our certainty in our relationship with God? It's His Word. We can't see God. We can't be confident the emotions we feel are God moving our emotions. 
We can't be, uh, we can't touch him. We, we, we don't have the experience like the apostles having seen our Lord in person. The communication or the revelation of God to us is his word. That's our confidence. That's our basis of our relationship with God is his word. So it's significant, the focus there on the covenant in the t- ark, it is the same basis we have in our relationship with God. It is his word. How may we know him? His word. How do we have a relationship with him? On the basis of his word. Now we look forward to the day, do we not? When we will see him face to face. We look forward to that time where we'll be able to have, uh, be in his physical presence and enjoy that and rejoice at that and faith will become sight. But now, the basis of our relationship with him is his word. Um, and, and that's symbolic of what they were experiencing then and what we understand and how we walk today. So we see the presence of God symbolized here by the ark and the, uh, the covenant and also the cloud here in verses 10 to 13. But let's notice also how Solomon then moves on to praise God uh, for his faithfulness. He praises God. Let's look at 14 to 21 here. Verse 14, the king then faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hands, saying, Since the day that I brought out uh, my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in, my, in place of my father David, to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which, made with the, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So we see Solomon starts with blessing on the people. So he's, he's uh, pronouncing blessing on the assembly of Israel here in verse 14. But we also see then he goes on to give praise and blessing to the Lord. And he focuses on a few things. 14 to 16, he for, focuses on uh, God's faithfulness in allowing Solomon to reign on the throne that David reigned on. So God has been faithful to the house of David by allowing Solomon to be the next king. So he gives God praise for that. He also praises God for his faithfulness with the temple, with regard to the temple. Uh, The Lord said, even though David wanted to build the temple, and it was good that he wanted to, God said it would be his son that would do it, and now it is done, so he's praising God for that. So he's praising God for his faithfulness in fulfilling what he said. 
He also draws attention to uh, uh, his faithfulness to the people of Israel uh, in transitioning um, since uh, they were brought out of the land of Egypt. Again, a simple reminder, I think an obvious application for us, is that God is faithful. God does what he says. And we need to be faithful and remembering that and giving him praise for that faithfulness. Now, it's, it's a little bit extended, but uh, thinking about our own prayer life. How many different struggles do we go through and hard times do we go through? And while we're in the midst of that, we're very burdened. And then something happens and we get an answer. We get resolution to that thing we go, out, go through and then we move on and we forget all about the fact that that was a burden and concern and we fail to give God praise for being faithful to us during that time. We've been talking a lot about trials uh, in Sunday mornings. Um, how many times have we been through a trial and sometimes very scary, very concerning, and in the midst of that trial we're... we're uh, uh, asking God for things, many things, sometimes in frantic uh, fashion because we're so concerned and unsure, and God meets those. And do we remember? Are we faithful to praise Him and honor Him for those answers? Or sometimes it's even more subtle. There's, there's little things that happen that demonstrate the faithfulness of God. We, we, we have songs where we remember uh, the mercies of God are new every morning, right? As it says, in Lamentations, let's just think about that. Jeremiah is seeing the destruction uh, of the nation of Israel, and they're being brought into captivity. And yet Jeremiah is reminded to give God thanks for his mercy that's new every morning. We also need to remember God's faithfulness and give him praise and honor for his faithfulness and reliability and trustworthiness as demonstrated repeatedly in our lives. So let's turn to uh, verses 22 to, 20, uh, to 53, actually. We're not going to read all of these um, at this time. We'll kind of break it up and look at different sections. But 22 to 53 is actually the main part of this chapter. And um, this is Solomon's prayer to God uh, at the temple um, at the time of dedication. And I would just say the first uh, few uh, verses or sections we look at there, Solomon is giving an introduction. Or he's saying some basic things at the beginning. He's praising God at the beginning of it. He's again talking about God's faithfulness to uh, the line of David. And then he goes on and he asks God essentially to hear the prayers of Israel toward the temple. And, and I think this is really important section to understand because it explains much of the rest of the Old Testament. Solomon is talking here about the temple, and he's, he, again, remember, it's the symbolic presence of God. So in Old Testament Israel, if they're praying, they're asking God for something, they're directing their prayers to the temple. So we see an example of that with who's our famous person that goes to Babylon, and we see him praying, even though they made a rule not to pray under, uh, under Darius, right? King Darius, he makes a rule not to pray, or you're going to be thrown to the lion's den. 
Who's the guy? Yeah, Daniel. Daniel prays towards the temple. And it's based on the things that Solomon says here. We also see Nehemiah do a similar thing. Nehemiah is burdened for the nation of Israel. And he prays towards the temple in a foreign land. Uh, and that's what Solomon talks about here. So we're going to look at verses 31 um, and to 53. It might take us about the rest of the time, but I think we'll break it down and go through it pretty quickly. So I just want to draw your attention to the structure here. There's basically seven different prayer situations that Solomon discusses and is basically asking God to hear the prayers of Israel during these kinds of situations. So let's walk through them. 31, 32. In 31, he says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. What's the point Solomon's asking for here? He's basically asking for God to bring justice. It's a situation where somebody's done wrong and nobody has essentially witnessed it, so they can't sort it out. So he's basically asking God to bring justice in such a case, that the righteous would be given according to his righteousness, but the wicked would, be, uh, would receive on his own head his wickedness. All right? So he's praying for justice to be done here. He also prays for restoration in defeat in battle in 33 to 34. It says, When your people Israel are defeated for your enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this, in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to the fathers. So we have a situation where they've, uh, they've sinned, which is the reason why they lost in battle. And he says they repent, they call out to you, then please forgive them and restore them. All right? So there's a defeat in battle. We also see pray for, prayer for rain. Verse 35 and 36. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your good people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land in which you have given your people for an inheritance. So it's prayer for rain. Now I should also mention, in uh, the Pentateuch, uh, one of the things we see is th the blessings and the cursings. Uh, at the end, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, there's talk of the blessings and the cursings. Much of what Solomon is saying here is based upon the blessings and cursings. So he's assuming in the future they will have done some of the things that bring God's displeasure and that he's basically saying they repent and call out to you uh, uh, and they pray towards your temple here, hear them and forgive them and restore them. So that's the kind of things he's talking about. But rain he talks about here, it, you, remembering they were a farm culture, right? Uh, nowadays we have uh, Meyer, we have Aldi's, we have Kroger, uh, we have all kinds of wonderful supermarkets we go to. So for us, rain is an annoyance. Right? I, if we're going to pray, we're praying for sunshine. 
right? Well, back in the farm culture, they're praying for rain because they need their food to grow so they can produce the crops that they need to live on. So, it's a very serious matter. He also talks in 37 and 34 about various hardships. And um, without reading, re reading that, we're going to move down to 41. But essentially, he talks about different natural disasters or hardships, whether it's famine, pestilence, or um, uh, defeat uh, by enemies, um, or oppression by enemies, whatever. Um, he's talking about them calling out to the Lord, and that the Lord, verse 39, would hear them, forgive them. And uh, his desire here in this is that through these things, the people would come to know uh, the Lord, or come to fear him, I'm sorry, he says in verse 40, that they may fear you. So he's asking for God to hear their prayers, to teach them ultimately to fear him. He says in verse 41, that foreigners would also be able to pray to the temple um, and that the Lord would hear so that the people of the earth would come to know the Lord. So there is also a hint here of the future focus, which we see in the New Testament, of the gospel going to the Gentiles and those outside of the nation of Israel. Look at 41 to 43 with me. It says, Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So this temple is not just for the nation of Israel. It is that all the people of the earth may know the Lord. And he's expressing that desire, which is the desire the Lord expressed. If you remember, in Exodus, it talks about him doing these great signs and wonders so that the people of the earth would know him. That is God's desire that people in all places would come to know him. So he talks about foreigners. He also talks here about soldiers in battle. Essentially the idea is Israelite soldiers have gone away to battle and therefore they can't come to the temple and pray. So they pray towards the temple. He's asking God to hear uh, those people and help them in their cause fighting for Israel. Um, and we see the seventh thing and I think very significant in light of what this book was written to accomplish is the situation of captivity. You remember, when was this book written? It's written during the time of the captivity. So it's very interesting that he focuses the largest section of Solomon's prayer on the captivity and what people in captivity should do. Why? Because he's appealing to his audience here. The, the nation of Israel that's been taken captive, he's reminding them of these things that Solomon prayed so that they would do this. So they would repent of their evil. They would turn from their wicked ways and they would pray back towards Jerusalem and the temple uh, that God would hear them and restore them back to the nation of Israel. So this section is critical for this book because it's the audience he's writing to are the people that have experienced this. 
So, he talks about they're in captivity. Why? Look at verse 46. They're in captivity because when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they are taken away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. They're in captivity because of their sin. So they need to uh, recognize. What do they need to do? Look at verse uh, 47. If they take thought in the land where they've been captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, the house which you have built for your name, then hear their prayer and supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. So what's Solomon praying? He's praying that when Israel sins, and they have sinned so bad that you give them over to their enemies and they're taken captive, and they come to realize they've sinned, and they repent, and they return to you, then forgive them and bring them back to the land. So what's the author of this book trying to encourage? That very thing. He's trying to encourage the people of Israel to recognize the reason why they're in captivity is their sin, and they need to repent of it. They need to return to the Lord with their whole heart and pray for His restoration. Now, we know that eventually happens, but it is what the author is intending to encourage his audience with, that they would recognize their sinfulness, repent of it, and return to the Lord. So that's what we see here in this section. And... Um, let's look at uh, 40, 40, 54, I'm sorry, to 61. And we see here the pronouncement of blessings here. Uh, Solomon's making at the end. And then we'll see the sacrifices in the, in the last few verses there. But let's look at 54, 54 and up to 61. We see Solomon pronouncing blessing here. We see 54, when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his hands and knees, his hands spread toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised, not one word of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. Again, what do we see Solomon doing? repeatedly praising God for his faithfulness. A huge takeaway we should have from this is a reminder for us to praise God for his faithfulness. He goes on, he says, May the Lord our God not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments and statutes and ordinances which he commanded from his Father, from our fathers, and these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, so that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, 
to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments to this day. So we see here Solomon is essentially ending his pronouncement here with a call for the people to obey. He's calling the people to obey. God has been faithful. They need to obey in order to continue to enjoy God's blessings, his favor, his favor they needed to obey. And then we see here he concludes with some presentation of offerings uh, in 62 to 66. It says, 62, Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. 22,000, 120,000 sheep. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to even fathom that many animals being in a country, let alone that many being offered on, uh, at one time for, for sacrifices. So a significant, significant offering uh, in dedication to the Lord, a time of celebration. Look at with me 65 and 66, how they conclude matters. It says, So Solomon observed the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even fourteen days. On the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart, for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to his Israel his people. So we see here a conclusion uh, a celebration and conclusion here, and they leave rejoicing. Rejoicing at what God had given them, God's faithfulness in giving a wise son to David, to use words similar to what Hiram used of Solomon, and rejoicing at God's faithfulness to allow them to complete the temple, which is a, was a glorious uh, building recognizing the presence of God with his people and was uh, unlike any temple of its day and a great uh, great uh, work to demonstrate the glory of God and obviously God's presence with them was an indication of his pleasure in what they had done in obedience to him and it was a great time of celebration. So as we think about first Kings uh, Eight, I, I think we see several characteristics of God that are good reminders for us. Number one, He is the great and glorious God worthy of all of our worship. They built a great temple, and though we have churches to worship in, we know that we have the privilege, especially as New Testament believers, to worship Him in spirit and truth, and that the place doesn't ultimately matter, right? We can worship God wherever. We, if we're a child of God, have received the Holy Spirit and can communicate with God and have direct access to Him through Jesus Christ. We have great privilege in worship. He is worthy of worship. We also see reminders of God's faithfulness and a need to praise Him for that. And I would say lastly... Um, as Solomon prays, is a reminder to us as well. He knew that Israel would sin. He knew 
because all men are sinners, as he says, that Israel would sin and wander from God and need to confess and return to him. We should be reminded that it is our tendency to, even though we have been saved, we have been forgiven of our sin, we have the Spirit, uh, our tendency is to sin and uh, wander as well, and we should be active and faithful in confessing our sin and forsaking sin on a regular, daily basis. So we do not get ourselves in a situation where it becomes too extreme. As, as one pastor that I had said, and it's a common saying, uh, keep short accounts with God, right? Frequently, regularly confessing our sin uh, to keep in fellowship with Him. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for this example from history of what You did and how Your people obeyed and did all this work to build a building to honor you and we thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness though in this that uh, you are faithful to your people you are long-suffering with your people and help us father to to remember to give you praise you are worthy of praise there's no one like you there is no other God like you. You alone are worthy of praise. And you, God, having given your Son for us, what an incredible act of love that you have done for us. To give your Son, to punish Him that we can be forgiven of our sins, that we can have life through Him. Clearly, there is no one like you. And you deserve all of our praise. Help us, though, also, Father, to recognize when we stray, when we are guilty, to confess and forsake that, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.